Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Well, good morning. It's great to be back after being away for a week in Texas. Uh, I generally miss you guys and miss gathering. This weekend, I was like super excited about this morning because I miss being away. Uh, we had some neighbors over last night around a fire pit, and they forgot I was a pastor. So I said, what are you guys doing tomorrow? And he said, well, we have church in the morning. And then they laughed. We're like, oh, we're so sorry for asking. Which like, it's fine. It's not a big deal. Um, just, just, but I miss being away from you guys. But our new friends in Texas, our new partnering church in Beaumont, Texas, say hello. Uh, hopefully, they'll be out here serving alongside of us probably in the summer months. And so it's great to be back. Uh, if you've been with us in the last few weeks, we are in a series called We Are the church, and so far we've looked at belonging, uh, just what it means to belong to a church family. We've looked at welcoming and how it is like the environment we want to create and, and invite all people and not show partiality. Last week, our guest speaker, Gerald, looked at gathering and the importance of not just what we're doing right now, but part of what we're doing right now. And then this week, we're going to look at caring and how it is that we care for one another. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Galatians. Galatians in the New Testament uh, will be in chapter 6, looking at verses 1 through 10, and the, the title or the heading in your Bible probably says something along the lines of bear one another's burdens, and so that's really this idea of what we're going to be looking at this morning. As I was preparing this week, I came across the story of Larry Lemieux, who was competing in the 1988 Olympics in SEAL. Uh, he competed in a sailing fin class with the Canadian team. It was an individual sailing competition. And he had, of course, worked for many, many years, worked really, really hard. And after four of five races, he was most likely going to come in second place. And so, yeah, gold's like your ultimate goal, but silver's pretty dang good if you're competing in the Olympics and you've prepared for that long. But as he was getting towards the end of his race, he happened to look over and he saw another competition that was happening. And he saw uh, two, uh, two sailors and their boat capsized. And so the sailors went into the water, and so he veered off of his path from his own race to go and rescue these two sailors, which he did, and then he waited with them until a patrol boat could come and basically escort them to get them checked on to make sure they were okay. And then he got back into his race, and he finished in 22nd, far from second place, and really kind of ruined his chances of ever earning a silver medal in the Olympics. But after the race, the International Yacht Racing Union announced that he should be awarded an honorary silver medal. I think we would probably all agreed in that moment as we watched. The Olympic Committee agreed, and they awarded him this medal for embodying the Olympic ideal of sportsmanship, of self-sacrifice and courage. And so even though he didn't actually cross that line to second place, for what he did, they said, you deserve this medal. Now, the reality is that few people today could name the gold medalist from that competition. In fact, if we stopped and I asked you, I don't think any of you could tell me that. But here we are, 33 years later, and people are still telling the story of Larry Lemieux, who got off of the track in order to help somebody else. He gave up the medal he worked so hard for. He forgot about himself and what his own goal, what he was attaining to, to bear someone else's burden and to potentially save their lives. And so in doing, whether he knew it or not, he was actually fulfilling the law of Christ, as the passage that Crystal just read for us at the beginning tells us. And so the story of Lemieux is really a great picture of what we're going to look at this morning, of how it is that we bear one another's burdens, how it is that we care for one another. And so the main point to our message from Galatians is this, caring for one another through the Spirit by bearing one another's burdens. So caring for one another through the Spirit by bearing one another's burdens. If you're taking notes this morning, we're actually going to break this passage down into five different points or five different parts. 
And so let's look at part one, gentle restoration. Should be on the board, or on the screen rather. Gentle restoration. Uh, go ahead and look at verse one with me. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So there's actually four things I want us to see in verse one. The first thing is the context of restoration. You see this uh, familiar language that Paul uses here. He begins by saying, brothers and sisters, ladies, he's not leaving you out, but brothers and sisters, which is a reminder for us that the church is a family. That's one of the reasons that that's one of the values of sojourn. And when we say we're family, if you're like, what do you mean by that? Well, if you read the New Testament, that's what I mean by that. Like, we're there for one another. We take care of one another. And I would think that Paul would argue, and I'd argue this morning, that we need this family. Like, life is hard. Adulting is really, really hard. I look back, like, before I was an adult and some of the, my kids' ages, and, man, like, you thought life was hard in the teenage years and even college. It kind of gets a little bit... Like adulting, I think I'm 35. I think 35, like you're a fully adult, right? You're not really a young adult. You're not really an old adult. You're an adult, and adulting is really, really hard. But in our spiritual life, our walk with Jesus is hard, and that, that God has given us this family. So not only do we need this family, God has provided that for us in this thing called the church, which is one reason I'm a very big proponent of the local church. I don't think God designed it for just Lone Ranger Christians and just our relationship with him. We actually need one another in order to get through this life. And so that is the context of a restoration. Second is the need for restoration. Paul says that sometimes those in the family, our brothers and sisters, they get caught up in wrongdoing. They're clearly guilty of something. There might be a transgression or a, a sin. And think about it. There's a real enemy at work, especially in our city. I feel like I see it every day. And what does the enemy do? The enemy sets traps. And sometimes some of us fall into those traps. And when that happens, and it will, we need our faith them to help open that trap. We need our faith them to help restore us, to help get us out of the thing that we have found ourselves in. James, the half-brother of Jesus, in James 5, 19, refers to this as wandering from the truth. Verses 19 and 20 of that chapter, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whatever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Tim Keller points out that the term restore, it, it, it's the same connotation or the same wording for what a disco to resetting a dislocated bone into place. He then adds this. A dislocated bone is extremely painful. If you've ever had one, you'll know that it is. Because not in its designed natural relationship to the other parts of the body. To put a bone back in place will inevitably inflict pain. But it's a healing pain. It means we are to confront, even when that will be painful, but our confronting must be aiming to prompt a change of life and heart. And so we are brothers and sisters in this thing called the church, we are adopted by God into his family, and we're knit together by the Holy Spirit, and we're called to seek the spiritual welfare and well-being of one another, even when it's painful. And the reality is it will be painful. Most of the time, if you're the one caught in sin or caught in some kind of transgression, you don't want to be confronted. You don't want to even be restored, but we are called to do this, and we're doing our brothers and sisters a disservice when we don't do this, when we refuse to do this. That brings us to third, the nature of restoration. So what must we do? We, we, someone's caught in a transgression, someone's caught in a sin, I think most of us just kind of sit back on the sidelines, okay? We just kind of sit back like we're watching Sunday afternoon football, and we don't want to do anything, you know? Like, I'm, I'm not God, and I don't want to be one to judge, and I don't want to confront, but Paul actually says that we are to restore such a person. But we got to look at the full verse. How are we to restore them? Gently, in a spirit of gentleness. 
I think that's why most of us don't want to restore people or most people don't want to receive restoration because the fear is it's going to be harsh and heavy-handed and um, you know, we're going to be the ones who kind of inflict this pain on them. But no, it says that we are to restore them, but we're to do it in a spirit of gentleness. Now, the word for gentleness actually occurred earlier in chapter 5, verse 23. We're not going to look at that this morning. As part of the fruit of the Spirit. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness. And if you are walking in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and hopefully we see the spirit of gentleness coming out. It's a, it's a characteristic of, of true spirituality. But why do you think Paul adds, only those who are spiritual should attempt the ministry of restoration? Why do you think that is? It's only those walking in tune with the Spirit should be the ones who attempt this. Because if you're not walking in tune with the Spirit yourself, then you're most likely not going to come in with a spirit of gentleness. That's why I think we a lot of times maybe experience the heavy-handedness, the judgmental spirit, because they're not walking in tune with the Spirit. Think about the Bible and the woman. I mean, the Bible, when the woman caught in adultery, was brought to Jesus in the Bible. What, what, what happened? What did the people want to do? They said, Jesus, we caught this woman. She's in adultery. So what do they want to do to her? They want to stone her. But Jesus wasn't interested in stoning her. Jesus wasn't interested in destroying her at all. What was Jesus interested in doing with her? Restoring her. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to do with us today. Regardless of where we found ourselves, if you're on a wandering path or a wandering journey, Jesus wants to restore us. His goal was not to come in and destroy us. I think sometimes, you know, there is the God of love, and we do need to look at the full Bible, and we want to discuss the God of wrath and judgment as well, but I think sometimes we focus so much on that that we get away from the God of restoration, the God who wants to come in and, and restore us. And so we must always remember the goal of restoration, and our part in restoration is to restore someone who has wandered off deep into sin, not condemnation. We want to give them restoration. And so we find a brother or sister, and they're, they're addicted to something. What should we do? We should seek to help them. What if we find a, maybe someone becomes a workaholic, and they start neglecting their family? This work, 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 work all the time, and they just all about money and getting more things in life. What should we do? We should seek to come alongside of them and restore them and point out and say, hey, you're not living in tune with the way God designed things. Or maybe when someone gets involved in a shady relationship, we should confront them and confront them gently, at least initially. Maybe later they need to kick in the pants, but confront them gently on the front end. Someone who's absent from the church. You start looking around, and, man, I haven't seen this person on a Sunday. I haven't seen them on a Wednesday. I haven't seen them in between. Send them a text. Give them a call. Say, hey, something going on? Because a lot of times in my life, and I know we're in the city where if you show up once every four weeks, like you are a regular attender. Like you get the gold star in our city, but not being from here originally, that's really hard for me to accept. But you kind of go like, a lot of times if I find myself absent, which now I'm a pastor, it's kind of hard to do. But prior to being a pastor, usually there's something going on in my life. Usually I'm somewhere caught in this, and I want to be away from this, and I don't want you to see me because I don't want you to confront me. So maybe it's a simple text. Hey, I'm praying for you. Hey, how you been? Hey, can we get coffee? Not to assume there's something going on. They're saying, hey, like, we miss you. Like, you're part of this, this family, right? When you get family together for Thanksgiving, which is not that far away, you just get together. I mean, we've missed you. It's been a long time since we've seen you, so reach out to these people. And so let's be the type of brothers and sisters who, who genuinely care for people and who deeply care for one another as we point each other ultimately to Jesus the ultimate restorer. Fourth is the nature of the restorer. Paul doesn't provide us with the actual steps of restoration. It'd be nice if he did. Like, here's A through Z, this is what you are to do. But he does talk about the nature of the restorer, of the one who's doing the restoration. First, he says the restorer should be spiritual. And so you should not be trying to rescue someone or restore them if you are not living by the Spirit. And let me explain that a little bit. Our generation loves to quote Matthew 7.1. Does anybody know what Matthew 7.1 says? 
No? Our Bible memory, we'll have to work on that. It says, judge not that you may not be judged, right? Our generation loves to quote that. Like, whoa, 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 don't be judging me, right? But we're all, I think our generation is oblivious. If you just read a few verses later, Matthew 7, 5, it says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus isn't urging us not to act. Jesus is saying, first, get that two by four that's way in your eye, get it lodged out, and then go and restore the person who's maybe got the sawdust and the speck in their eye. But he's urging us, look at your own heart first, humbly repent and kind of recognize, like lay before the altar of God, say, where have I sinned? Where do I have transgressions? Where am I broken? And then go and help, and help restore those who are struggling. So I think we missed that. I think we stop at the Matthew 7, 1 and go like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to judge. But no, we're actually called to do this. And in some ways, we're being disobedient to what Jesus has called us to do for not doing this. Second, the restorer should be gentle. The spiritual restorer is the one to exercise this delicate ministry gently and humbly. Right? Think about it once again. If someone's coming to approach you, right, and you know there's something going on, you get that text, you get that phone call, and you think, oh, no, what is this about? But when you meet with that person and you grab coffee with them, if they come in the spirit of gentleness and they come humbly to you, you're going to receive it a lot better, right? If they come in and go, bro, you messed up again, or you did this and this, and like, you're like, whoa, once again, there might be a time and place for that, but at least initially we're going to go in with the spirit of gentleness and humbleness. Third, the restorer should be watchful or careful. Paul adds that we ourselves are to be watchful, lest we also be tempted, so we, we have to forget, you know, sometimes we forget that like, I could be the one that's caught up in this next. I may, it may be reversed. The person that's coming to gently restore you may have to reverse that role. And so this suggests that the gentleness is born out of a sense of our own weakness and our own proneness to sin, which includes every single one of us. We all get caught up in those things. We all get caught up in those traps that are all around us. It's like a landmine. And the enemy's going throughout our city and everywhere we go and set these traps and we foolishly don't think they're there. But they are, and sometimes we'll find one of ourselves in those traps as we get caught up in something, get wandering off on a journey that we never intended to take. And so what are we instructed to do if the person is in sin? It's not rhetorical. What are we instructed to do? Restore them. We are instructed to restore them. Now, what if the person, often the case, doesn't want you to restore them? Maybe there's fear of judgment, or maybe they've just got this independent spirit. I'm okay. You know, I've done this before. I've had these seasons of life. If you're the one receiving the restoration, and I need you to hear this, we are a body, and the entire body is affected by what you do. And so if you are caught in sin, then it impacts the entire body. Going back to the dislocated bone that Tim Keller pointed out to us, right? So if we're a body as the church, and you don't want to be gently and humbly restored by someone, then we might be like hopping around like this, right? And this is what Sojourn's trying to accomplish in the city because we aren't whole. And so that you need to receive that gently and humbly because it's for the good of the whole church. Once again, I think we, we get so individualized in our country and we focus ourselves and it's me and Jesus. And like, no, it's yes, it's you and Jesus, but it's all of us together. And that we have this role to play and that's going to impact the entire church. It's going to really impact our outreach and our impact if we're not working in tune with the Spirit and coming together and restoring one another. Point number two, humbly carry one another's burdens. Let's look at verses two through five. Bear one another's burdens, and to fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And so we see that verse 2 builds off of what we just looked at in verse 1, because if a brother or sister is in need of help because they are caught in this transgression or sin, 
then we are to help them by doing what? By bearing their burdens with them. We are to bear their burdens because it's a supreme imitation of Jesus, who was the ultimate burden bearer. Think about Jesus, who went to the length of taking our burdens, our sins, our transgressions, our guilt, our shame, and the cure of the law upon himself. That Jesus did that, and now he says, you are to help bear one another's burdens because it's part of the purpose of God that he has given us in this life. And so we should not keep our burdens to ourselves. And so if you feel burdened this morning, you feel maybe trapped, right? When I think about this idea, it uses the word caught here. I think about the spider webs that we get this time of year. We get a lot of spiders. We hardly have any bugs here because we have spiders. But you kind of walk through something, you don't see it, and then you get all sticky and you're caught in it. That's kind of how sin is, and it gets all over you. But if you don't share that with anyone, we don't let anyone know that you're struggling and there's this, this transgression in your life, then we can't restore you. And the reality is that we all have burdens, every single one of us. They vary in shape and size, and they vary in different seasons, but we all have them. Maybe there's a habitual temptation, which temptation is not sin, but you know, like, this is where I'm weak. This is where I'm likely to give in. This is where I give in. Maybe there's a consequence of a moral failure. Maybe there's a physical ailment that you're dealing with. Maybe there's a, a mental health disorder. We see a lot of that in our city. Maybe it's just something else entirely. But we all have them. And we must remember, I think sometimes we forget, like, why is life so hard? You ever find yourself doing that? I think the last two years I've done that a lot. Like, why is life so hard? Jesus, please return. We forget that creation itself is broken. Creation itself is groaning out, and believers groan with it. We, we, we don't get uh, a get-out-of-groaning card. We don't get out of getting our brokenness card. We still have it this side of heaven as we wait for the final deliverance that will come only with the return of the Redeemer of glory. So the, the, the good news is we have the answer. Like The good news is we know eventually this groaning will stop. But this side of heaven, we still go through it. And we get to point people to Jesus and go, hey, one day you too can be relieved of this. If you look back at verses 3 through 5, these verses present us with two diverse aspects of self-examination before God. First, self-examination is not so that you're only focused on self. That's not what it means. I think in the church, and at least in America, we do a pretty good job of that, like focusing on ourselves. But true self-examination is not just checking your spiritual pulse, but it's actually submitting your thoughts, your attitudes, and actions to the Spirit of God and what God has revealed in His words. And say, look, I know that I have these things, but I want to submit this to you, God. A second dimension of self-examination has to do with competition and boasting. So the original audience that Paul is writing to within this church at Galatia, some of them have become, it says, like puffed up. And, and they kind of created classes of us and them. And kind of like, we're the holy class, and we're the ones who are following Jesus and doing right, and they're the, they're the bad class. They're like the rebellious ones. And so they kind of created these classes within the church. But Paul says, no, that's not actually what you are to do. Instead, you are to come together. You're to bear one another's burdens which are too heavy for any one man to bear alone. That's why life feels so hard. You're not meant to do it by yourself. Yes, there's God, but God gave you others around you to help you bear that load, to hold one another accountable. But then there is one burden, which he mentions here, which we cannot share. That burden is a responsibility to God on the day of judgment. Paul points out every individual is responsible to, burden, to bear that burden, to respond obediently to the opportunities that God has given them, or him or her, to respond. Now, I think so we don't bind to some form of individualism here. Paul actually points in the next verse, this whole passage builds on itself, to submit to teachers and preachers in verse 6. So if you look at our third point this morning, receive and give generously. So Paul shifts gears here a bit. He, he all of a sudden says, one who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. So we see this Greek word for the one who is taught, Katekaminos, I don't know if I said that right, 
but it meaning, it's meaning one who is catechized. So we don't really use that language a whole lot, sojourn, but this idea of, of catechism. Uh, think about Christian doctrine. And that, that's so important here that the new believers, especially, that they all receive this basic discipleship teaching of catechism, of, of this catechism, of this doctrine. And Paul says, as a result, that we should share all good things with the one who teaches. And so Paul here speaks to the responsibility of the teacher and also of the receiver within the household of God. So if it's somewhat caring for one another, and he gives us a picture of what this looks like. So first, the responsibility of the teacher. So the primary responsibility of a pastor is to teach or preach the word of God. So part of my calling is to do that. I feel like a lot in, in our culture, a lot in our nation have gotten away from that. Uh, I actually put that on Twitter this week and started all this back and forth with these guys. And they were like, well, you just think you have to do it a certain way. It has to be expositionally. It has to be this. I said, no, I never said that. I'm saying just that we get away from the word of God. If I just came in and gave you guys an entertaining talk, and maybe I don't mention God at all. I don't mention the Bible at all. You know, and there's churches who do that. People feel really good. And most of those churches are a lot bigger than we are. You know, but I refuse to do that for us to grow. You might ask why. Why is it that you do that? Well, what is one of the qualifications of a pastor? Okay, so if I get away from teaching the word of God, then you guys need to say, hey, you are disqualified and we're going to find somebody else. We don't care how much money you raise. You need to get out. Okay, um, you have permission to do that. And I'm also commanded to do it. So that's another reason. And, and then the, the probably one of the most important reasons is the truth of scripture is what you need for life. You can get all the self-help books you want. Just go to Barnes & Noble or just go on Amazon. You probably don't actually buy physical books anymore. There's self-help books like Out the Wazoo. Like they're all over the place. But that's not what you need for life. There might be some good leadership principles in there. There might be some good life 101 principles. There might be some good adulting principles. But what you need for your life is the truth of Scripture. I think we rob ourselves when we get away from that. We rob ourselves when we look at something different. And so my role as a pastor is not to entertain you. I'm probably not that entertaining anyway. Her role is not to use gimmicks or tricks. You know, I'm not saying it's wrong to do this. You know, some churches will like do water pictures. I'm like, I'm just not that talented, right? I've got to kind of focus on my manuscript and the text, and we don't have a lot of space to move around here. But my job is not to entertain you, like not to dress up as a clown and come up here and say, look at this, and here's this show. My role is to preach the truths of Scripture for your edification, for all of our edification, right? We were talking, I was in this preaching cohort last week while I was in Texas, and we were talking about this idea that, you know, I'm not just doing this for myself. I'm not just doing this to hear myself or for you to hear, but it's really to help draw you closer to God and to point you to God, which is why we go through verse by verse and text by text. Now, it's not the only thing I do. It's not the only thing that we do as a church, but in order for us to know how to live our lives as ones who say that, that we follow Jesus, then we need to be taught the Bible, and ask that the Spirit of God will reveal to us the truth, reveal to us what it is that we are to do as a result. So that's the responsibility of the teacher. But there's also the responsibility of the receiver, those who are, are receiving the word, those who are hearing the word. Obviously, they should learn from their teachers. So hopefully, you learn something. And then we should obviously reteach. That's part of it, like discipleship. Paul invested in Timothy, and Timothy went and invested into others. And you kind of you can see it go on and on and on. And so the truths that you're learning, even if you're not a teacher, there should be someone in your life. It might be your child, it might be your spouse, it might be a coworker that you're saying, hey, this is what I learned. And this is what I'm studying together. That's part of the, the idea of tables that we talk about and that training we want to do is how is it you take something and you give it to someone else and you teach them to go teach it to somebody else. But here Paul focuses on the responsibility when he says to share all good things with the one who teaches. And so Paul urges the believers, the church, to support and provide for its teachers. This would include food, money, whatever good things are appropriate for their welfare. And so, yes, it includes financial support. It benefits both the learner and the teacher if the one teaching can essentially do it full time, to be able to, to operate and not be distracted by other things. But the context here, I don't want to miss this, it's in the context of this fellowship, of biblical fellowship, not just potlucks that we get together and enjoy good food. 
Because Paul doesn't want you to see it so much as a payment. I think, once again, in our American minds, we like to make everything like a business. And we think, oh, if we do this, then we're just paying the one who is teaching. But Paul wants to see this as a shared fellowship of the resources that God has given to those who don't teach. And so as I was studying this week, and I know you might be saying, well, you're the one teaching, so that's why you see it that way. But it really kind of hit me in this new way. Like some people, not all of us, but some people might be like just really super talented and really good at something that they do. Maybe it's an IT, or maybe they're a doctor. They just make bukus of money. And then they're able to go, man, this is one of my gifts that God has given me and these resources. And, and maybe they, they aren't a teacher. And so they share with the, the church, they share with the body in order to support potentially a teacher or a preacher. And there's a warning I think we should put here. We've seen the abuse of this in the church, right? Where, where you get the two extremes. You either get really lazy and the preachers and teachers do nothing at all. Or there's greed that we see that happens, right? So once again, you guys probably are going to see me on a private jet anytime really soon. Not based on our current offerings. Um, but I think, I look at it, so why did Paul include this teaching here? Like, why did he add this instruction within this passage of bearing one another's burdens? I think it's likely because the teachers in Galatia were in need. They had some kind of need, and Paul said, hey, church, you can, you can fulfill this because the teaching that they need to focus on and be able to do, you need that. You need that for your life. You need that for your relationship with God. And so I think they were in some kind of need here. But once again, I don't want to miss Paul's ultimate concern. It is not money. Paul's burden was for the advancement of the gospel, and he knew the God-ordained means for accomplishing the advancement of the gospel was a steady proclamation of the word of God. That's why Paul valued this so much, because he saw that this is going to advance it outside of here, and it's going to take it to uh, the ends of the earth, ultimately. And so Paul saw the, the value in that. He saw the need for that. This brings us to point number four, our personal holiness. Pick up in verses uh, 7 and 8, where we're going to see Paul kind of give a different emphasis here. He talks about sowing and reaping, but not in relation to money. It's more of our personal holiness. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so Paul immediately follows up this idea with teaching, supporting teachers with this idea of do not be deceived. So he's also warning, because all these churches in the New Testament, we see that these other teachers come in, these false teachers, and they start deceiving the people. And so he says, hey, support the teachers, but also be warned, do not be deceived by false teachers who might come in. And so his final appeal was resist these teachers and don't be deceived by them. And so to make his point, Paul uses probably one of the most familiar experiences in the history of mankind, maybe not as much to us today, but the idea of sowing and reaping, right? If you've gone around the, the globe, you'll see this a lot. And even in Portland, like we all have this green thumb, at least we pretend that we do, and we're all gardening, right? We're kind of in the post-garden, at least summer garden season. And so this idea of sowing, you know, in the spring, you're sowing these seeds and you hopefully reap it during the summer months. And so whatever you sow, you reap. Now, the image of moral consequences indicates the same process for our, our, our moral consequences as well. What we sow in our life, we also reap in our life. I love bacon cheeseburgers. Like, I would eat a bacon cheeseburger with a little bit of mayo and some pickles every single day if Andrea would let me get away with it. And some hand-cut fries and maybe a fresh-squeezed lemonade. Now, about five years of my life, I worked at this restaurant when, before I was married to Andrea, and I did do that every single day. So I wonder I'm still alive today. But if you eat fatty foods like that every day, what's it going to do? Clog your arteries. You're going to get a poor heart, and you're probably going to have an early death because of eating that way. So I probably would be dead by now if I hadn't married Andrea. Thank you, babe. Um, but it's the same way in our spiritual life. When you give in to your sin nature, we reap the spiritual and breakdown of destruction that sin will wreak havoc in our lives. And so Paul's warning must be read within the full context here of this letter. Where Paul's indicated that Christians can and very often do fall back into traps. Right? If you've been walking with the Lord any length of time, 
right? L.A. got baptized this summer, and so he's been walking with the Lord for a few months, and I'm going to attest for him that he has fallen back into traps. He has fallen back into sin. And we try to say, hey, that's, that's normal, that, that we all do that. That doesn't mean that you're not following Jesus. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christian because we're saved by grace. And if we live by the Spirit, we will enjoy the approval and assurance of the fulfillment that the Spirit of God can bring us. But we're still going to deal with this struggle, these, tra these pains, these traps. Otherwise, I don't think Paul would have written this letter to us, or this part of the letter. It's kind of like reality going, hello, you will fall into this. That's why in discipleship, like you should tell people that on the front end. Because I think people start following Jesus like, cool, life's going to be great. I'm not going to sin anymore. Like, er, that's actually not going to last very long. That's called the honeymoon phase. And it lasts about half a minute. And then you have that thought. And you think, oh, no, am I not a Christian anymore? And you start questioning your salvation. You go, no, let me walk you through this. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily mean that. It doesn't mean we cease to be Christians. But it means that we do have the real life struggles now. Which brings us to our fifth and final point this morning. Don't give up. Paul concludes this section by offering some encouragement in verse 9, and he's going to give some final instructions on biblical community in verse 10. And his encouragement in verse 9 is this, and let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I think there's always this delay between sowing and reaping. When you sow those seeds in the spring, right, you don't see it immediately. You don't have the cabbage and the peppers and the zucchini. It's sometime later, six, eight, sometimes 10 weeks later. But if you're a new farmer, if you're new to gardening, you probably experience this anxiety, like, Okay, I towed the soil, I, I sowed the soil, I got all these seeds, I did all this stuff, I prepared it, I, I, I did the garden box, and I'm not seeing anything. I'm not even seeing little sprouts come up, and you, you've got this anxiety. But a seasoned farmer will tell you, most likely, if you did it right, they will always produce. But you've got to be patient, you've got to wait for time. And so Paul's message is simple here. He says, don't give up, don't lose heart, persevere. Eventually, not immediately, eventually, you will see the fruits of your labor. And so that's what Paul is telling us here. Church, persevere, endure, but you can't do it on your own. You need one another in order to do this. Probably one of the best examples I can think of, if you've ever heard of William Carey, missionary to India, in 1793, he, he had a burden to preach the gospel of Jesus to the lost people groups of India who had never even heard the name of Jesus. And he spent seven years proclaiming this message faithfully, day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, without seeing a single Indian convert to Christianity. Do you not think that he had struggles? Do you not think that he had doubts and questions? What am I doing here? And God, I think, I mean, I lived in India in like the early 2000s, 1793, and it had a lot less stuff in India, right? I don't think it was, it was probably very easy to live there. But Kerry was often discouraged, but he was never defeated. He wrote a, a letter back to his sisters in England. He said this, I feel as a farmer does about his crop. Sometimes I think the seed is springing, and thus I hope a little blast all, and my hopes are gone like a cloud. They were only weeds which appeared. Or if a little corn sprung up, and quickly die, being either choked with weeds or parched up by the sun of persecution. Yet I still hope in God, and I will go forth in his strength and make mention of his righteousness, even of his only. Remember that last part of that letter, because I feel like that's like a daily thing I need to hear. Yet I still hope in God, and will go forth in his strength and make mention of his righteousness, even of his only. Well, on December 28, 1800, William Carey baptized in the, in the Ganges River his first India convert, a carpenter named uh, Krishna Pal. A friend who witnessed this deliverance of this man wrote this in his diary. That's going to sound a little strange. That's how he wrote it. But ye gods of stone and clay, did ye not tremble when in the triune name one soul shook you from his feet as dust? And this seven-year journey to see this first convert, it opened the doors and the floodgate for a harvest of souls that God had been working and preparing all through those seven years. But it took that perseverance of the seven years to get there. 
And so finally, consider Paul's specific instruction, verse 10, then we'll wrap up. He says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Sounds like really good advice in 2021, even on social media, and especially those who are of the household of faith. And so as Christ followers, as a, as a church, we are to be marked by this practical goodness of how it is that we treat one another, but really how we treat everyone. And so it's pretty simple to understand this final verse. Do good to all people, especially those who are part of the church. And so Paul has this universalistic appeal to all people. And why is that? Because every single man, woman, child is created in the image of God. I think we forget this sometimes. And that's when we find, kind of fall into these blinders and these areas of maybe sin. Of, remember, we looked at partiality just a few weeks ago when we opened this series. And I think that's why it happens, is we forget that all people, even if they believe differently than we didn't do, even if they look differently, even if they identify a certain way, that, that all people are created in the image of God. And when you put this whole passage together, here's what we see. That we are to care for one another by being spirit-led people who are known by our gentleness, by our humble burden-bearing, by our generous sharing and our personal holiness. Tony Merida in his uh, kind of commentary on the, this area, or this book of Galatians, he said, this is life in the spirit. Were these qualities not embodied in Jesus? Yes, perfectly. Jesus restored us from our broken relationship with God. He continues to restore our soul. He carried our greatest burden, the crushing weight of sin. He kept God's law in our place and then died in our place, removing the penalty of sin that was upon us so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate generous giver who made us rich through his poverty. Jesus constantly sowed in the spirit a life of perfect righteousness and reaped eternal glory. Jesus was a prophet in word and deed who went about doing good. And Jesus gives the example and he gives us the spirit to live out these responsibilities. And so as we move into a time of reflection this morning, I want us to give us some things to think about, kind of uh, some action steps as we would leave this place, and how it is that we actually apply this message to our lives. First is do the important work of restoring one another, that we'll bear one another's burdens, that we'll share generously, that we will do good and that we will not give up. Maybe this morning you thought of somebody. It could be in our church family or just another Christ follower that you know, and you think, man, I need to go to them gently and humbly. I need to first go ahead and get that two by four out of my eyes. I'm going to do the hard work of that this weekend. And I'm going to go to them gently and humbly and say, I was convicted by a sermon I heard and that I'm supposed to do this. I've been doing you a disservice and disjustice by not doing this. Now, they may not receive it, but you're not responsible for how they react. You're responsible to do the part that we're called to do. Second, recognize caring for sinners and sufferers in ministry work that we should all participate in. This isn't just my job. This isn't just your job. This is all of our jobs because we all have blinders and we all fall in those traps. So every single one of us have a role and part to play in this. So make time for listening to others. You know, I think we get busy in our lives. I know we still are kind of at a distance in Zoom, but if you got to do it on Zoom, do it on Zoom. If you've got to be over coffee, do it over coffee. Listen to someone. Pray with them. Help them. Do the work of burden bearing. Third, remember your personal life will always have an impact on your community, specifically your church family. And so if you don't share with others your struggles, you don't share with others what's going on in your life, then it, it might be like a, a cancerous tumor inside that you don't know is there because you refuse to go to the doctor. And that will, that will greatly impact a church. And that will greatly make a church just slowly die a, a death, ultimately. And so be open with one another. I think we've created enough culture and environment at Sojourn. We can do that with each other. Fourth is look for opportunities every week to do good to others. Look for ways just to bless other people, to generous, be generous with your life. And finally, pray for your church family. Because maybe instead of Sojourn, look at how they love and care for one another. You know, I think about the community around us. How are they going to know us? What are, what's going to distinct? What's unique about what we're doing right now from any other meeting that's happening right now is our love for one another. 
and our ultimate love for God, and that's where the love for one another comes from. And so may our community see that. So let me pray for us this morning. Ben will come back up and he'll uh, finish us out. God, we thank you for another week that we can gather as the church. God, as our series is called, We Are the Church. God, we belong to one another because we belong to you. God, we want to welcome all people to take this journey of learning what it means to follow you. God, we want to gather as we live out the one another's in scripture. God, we want to care for one another and bear one another's burdens because the reality is that this life is really, really hard and you have called us to bear those burdens with one another, to restore one another and ultimately point each other back to you. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your spirit. We ask that now that as we move into this time of response, we would be reminded of that yet again. God, repent where necessary. And Lord, if there's someone that we need to go to and help gently restore them, that we would follow through in obedience this week. It's by your name we pray, Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.